Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for, for Investors. We are joined today, Wes Gray, Alpha Architects, here in the studio with us. Wes, thanks for coming down to the studio. Sad to be here. Uh, please note, a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, our discussion is not tied to the opportunity of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Interesting show today. We have two guests in the studio. Patrick O'Shaughnessy, CEO, the newfound CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Hey, guys. And we have Sam Hartsmark, a PhD from the University of Chicago. Sam. Thank, thanks for having me. We're going to get into extended conversations with Patrick and Sam, uh, but Professor Siegel, we have you for some commentary on the markets. Uh, you've been calling for a pause. You've been calling for a pullback. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of volatility here in the markets. Is this what you were were thinking about? Yeah, this is uh, this is what I'm talking about. We went a little bit too far, too fast. But the story today is that labor market report. The uh, year over year. Uh, wage gains uh, hitting a record. It wasn't just this last month. There was some revisions upward. Um, and, uh, you know, we're now taking a look at the 10-year at the 283. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not a multi-year high. We hit 3% right after the, the taper tantrum. We, we just about hit 3% right after Trump was elected when we thought, you know, there was going to be tax cut and infrastructure and, and, and. Um, but they all came back down. Uh, now people are wondering whether it is coming back down or this is really the beginning of the bear market. Uh, and that's pressuring stocks. Uh, uh, you know, reason, you know, as uh, one should expect uh, expected to, um, but uh, you know, as I said, I, 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 you know, I called for zero to ten percent return this year, um, and I'm still calling for that. I mean, we're going to get volatility during the year as these yields move up, uh, but they're going to fight with earnings estimates that get better and better and better. So, as I keep on saying, the numerator and the denominator are both moving up in our price of stocks formula and uh, which one uh, happens to win for one day or the other depends on which, uh, whether the stock market is is going up or down uh, any sort of one of the big stories this week has also been the crypto market I know you talked about yeah. the uh, the big enthusiasm of that any commentary is that spilling over into the equity markets you see any sentiment spill over no I mean I think you know it's on its own trajectory I mean uh, you know I've said I it's a bubble um, and you know I know Bitcoin is 8700 actually fell below 8,000 earlier earlier today and I still tell people in you know five years it's under a thousand. I, I don't believe these cryptocurrencies are structured in a way that they're going to supplant uh, or even be an alternative form of of wealth that is uh, going to generate anything. Um, I think we're seeing kind of the burst of the bubbles now. One has to remember that you know there's a lot of huge rallies that can come in, so it's not easy to ride the downside. Um, but I think it's having its own problems in terms of, of you know, first of all, hacking into uh, the Bitcoin, the transactions cost, the speed of transactions. More people are now thinking, you know, I, do, am I going to accept this? We had a number of firms that have first said yes, some are backtracking. And all those doubts are coming to fruition. And um, uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic uh, as n I've never been optimistic about those cryptocurrencies uh, really uh, holding stand. Patrick, let me ask you to weigh in. You had a very popular series, Hash Power, on your podcast. Uh, any any comments from what you heard the professor say, or anything that you're seeing in that in that market right now? Well, my DNA would be to agree with him. I'm, I'm a value investor at heart. That's my that's my my roots. But I learned through that process that I shouldn't underestimate these things. 
I think it's important to remember that the notional amount of dollars that are, are being traded is still pretty tiny. In the, I mean, while the notional market caps or network values of, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum are very high, I think that the price action is really set at the margin. And so, yes, it's a big crash happening right now. It's down 40 or 50 percent. But this has kind of been par for the course in Bitcoin. I, I'm certainly no crypto bull. Um, but but I, I gained a tremendous amount of respect for the kind of technology that's being installed. I, I don't recommend people trade them or try to try to guess the uh, which way the market's going to go. But but I do own a little bit of Bitcoin, mostly to watch it um, and, and not to underestimate it like I used to. Very good. Professor, any any other thoughts on the markets here? The the Fed meeting, any you know, they nothing big yeah, news from there. I mean, but the Fed meeting says you know we're raising in March, and given the wage increases, certainly nothing going to stop them. Uh, you know, whether there's three or four, they don't know yet. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I, I think the March meeting, what I will find fascinating, and I'm I'm going to be glued to, the, uh, you know, Jay Powell's first uh, uh, news conference. See how he handles. Uh, some of the questions. I mean, you know, by then we might have the 10-year <clears throat> above three and a little bit of cooling down uh, on that. Um, I mean, job growth was was very good. Unemployment stayed the same. Did not did not go down. Uh, the um, participation rate also stayed uh, the same. But you know, something I've always said. You know, we're in, we cannot have 200,000 growth. Uh, every month without that unemployment rate going down and touching uh, the nerve of uh, higher wage and hence price in inflation. It's just a matter of time. Well, Professor, thanks for sharing some comments with us here to start the show. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Wes, uh, you were sort of the architect, both the alpha architect and the architect of the show today. You invited uh, Sam and Patrick down. Um, maybe I'll let you do the honors of uh, introducing your, your friend Sam here. Sure. So, um so Sam Hartsmark, I've been following his career ever since it pretty much started in academic research. And in my professional opinion, which no one really cares about, I consider him probably the most compelling researcher out there in uh, academic finance land. And that's just not me. I will say that every paper you write, Sam, wins an award. Um, <laughs> so before I even rant any more about how awesome you are, you mind just talking a little about your background and you know what your research is about at high level? Sure. So uh, thanks for the kind words, by the way. But uh, so my high level research, I do kind of asset pricing and behavioral finance. Um, so I kind of look at how investors think about investments, how they um, make investing decisions, and then ultimately how that kind of filters up and uh, impacts how securities are priced and traded uh, and possibly how, uh, you know, firms cater to those biases and um, uh, how, how uh, returns are predictable. Now, one thing I got to ask you, you're at the University of Chicago, Eugene Fama, the, the father of efficient markets is there, and you're Mr. Behavioral Finance. W what's it like doing research in that environment? Is it hostile? Is it nice? So, what, how, What's it like? So, I mean, one of the cool things about the finance group at Booth is it's a group that's really passionate about kind of understanding financial markets and knowledge, um, and it's also a very empirical group. And so as someone who mainly does kind of data-driven um, studies, it's a, a place that you can go to and present research uh, of the type that maybe isn't necessarily what um, the audience uh, would, would think is the way the world works. But if you can show them the, um, you know, empirically that something holds, they can be convinced. So, you know, I'd say it's actually a really fruitful place to be doing research because you get pushed, um, your ideas get tested quite strongly. Um, but also it's, you know, people who really uh, want to kind of understand these markets. And so they're uh, willing to, um, you know, be, be swayed by empirical results. Gotcha. So you study all these behavioral issues, especially in the context of finance. Is there one bias that's kind of the king of biases out there that you've studied and tried to understand better? So I'd say that kind of the general idea of of mental accounting is really powerful in finance, and it kind of um, encompasses a number of kind of specific biases. So, you know, the standard finance theories is that no one cares about, say, individual stocks. They look at portfolios, they optimize portfolios, and, and that might be kind of solid, like rational investment advice. Um, but it seems like a lot of investors aren't quite doing that. They're, say, looking at each stock individually, they're framing it in different ways. 
Um, and so some of the the very kind of first classic behavioral finance stuff was about how people look at gains versus losses on individual positions, uh, which this is the disposition effect that you're more likely to sell a position at a gain than a loss, which is often quite bad because it makes you kind of a negative momentum investor uh, and leads to poor performance. Um, and so when I kind of started doing research, you had this really strange world where there was kind of the totally rational portfolios, nothing mattered other than the portfolio, and then this other world where everyone looked at each individual stock on its own. So I went from there uh, to try to think about something more in the middle. So they aren't doing a Markowitz, I optimize everything, but maybe they're kind of looking at how things perform relative to other stuff in their portfolio. or they're looking at a position they're holding relative to what they sold. So I, I really tried to kind of think about more of the nuance of how people were mentally accounting for positions, how that impacted their behavior, and how it impacted how they traded. Would you describe, Sam, on this holding things, the distribution effect, that people you know, have this case of like get-even-itis, they want to get even on anything that they lost, but they're always quick to just ring the register on a gain so that they're not willing to ride that gain because they feel like they just got to see that gain come into their account, but then they hold on to these losers forever just to try to get even. Is that one of the big problems you see in trading? Uh, yeah. So I think that that is absolutely some of the psychology. Um, so actually, a, a paper I have that kind of speaks to this is we show that um, kind of people, when they uh, sell a stock and then buy something to replace it in their portfolio, they treat the new stock as a continuation of the old one. So if you've got this kind of get even-itis, like, and you've got a position that's at a loss and you sell it and buy something new, what we show is you buy a lot more volatile position, which seems like the investor going, man, this position's at a loss. I hate selling this thing at a loss. So I'm gonna try to take some risk to kind of, you know, get back into the gain domain by kind of selling it and buying something new. So that that definitely seems to be some of the psychology of what's going on. Wes, in a few weeks when we get Annie Duke on the podcast, I'm sure that's gonna carry over when she talks about the poker tables and how people try to get even. They get down and they try to get even, they take risk, they play marginal hands. Definitely. That yeah, I'm sure it'd be nice to have her with, with Sam here. We got the professional poker player and the professional researcher on all these things. Um so Sam, I know this is a topic that's near and dear to both Patrick, whose firm runs uh, dividend yield like strategies called shareholder yield, and of course, you know, Jeremy and his firm, they they love dividends and shareholder yield. You've written a lot about dividends, and dividends is just a hot topic for investors. Inform us and educate us about what you found studying this uh, this market phenomenon. Yeah, so I, I found that kind of dividends actually fall into this category of mental accounts quite well. Um, and I'd say that there's a, a few different things that are important when thinking about dividends. There's kind of thinking about dividend paying stocks as a class, which uh, you know could be interesting for a variety of reasons, could be correlated with you know signals, things like that. And there's thinking about the dividend payment itself. So how should I feel about receiving the cash? And of course, we, we've known for a long time in finance that um, basically you should be indifferent, you know, absent things like tax, absent things like, um, you know, transaction costs, because if you receive a dollar worth of dividends, the uh, value of the stock drops by a dollar, you're not richer, you're not poorer. Um, if you needed a dollar, stocks are liquid, you could always sell a dollar of the stock and you'd be kind of indifferent. So we've known this for a long time. But a lot of the way that information is presented and things are talked about, dividends um, seem to be thought of by people kind of more like a bond coupon payment, kind of like income. Um, and so we've got a paper where we argue that there's lots of people who exhibit what we call the free dividend fallacy, that people view the dividend payment, the cash payment itself, is a way to profit from a stock independent from the price value. And we think that it's because they're mentally uh, mentally accounting for the price change component and the dividend yield component separately. And that does seem to be kind of a mistake that lots of people seem to make, um, and, and probably one uh, that can be costly uh, at times if lots of people are, um, you know, kind of buying into dividend paying stocks at the same time. So, for example, if you view it as a bond yield when interest rates are low. Uh, lots of people want dividends, and that might uh, mess around with valuations and lead it to being a costly mistake. Let me just reintroduce our guest here in the studio. We have Sam Hartsmark, Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. 
Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Patrick, I'll let you jump into the conversation here. Any thoughts about the, the free dividend fallacy, how you think about dividends as a factor that O'Shaughnessy looks at in your quantitative process? One of the things we focus a lot on is how corporate managers allocate their capital. I think there's a lot to be learned as an investor when, when building a portfolio to kind of follow those decisions versus following what they say. And I'm, I've just long been fascinated by dividend policies, <clears throat> not, not just in the U.S., but say in Europe where dividends are even more popular and sort of the psychology um, that Sam's talking about behind the feeling of cash flow and getting a regular dividend payment when I think the, it's a pretty clean argument. I, if I was deciding, I would pay no dividends, right? Because buybacks are far more tax efficient if you're trying to return capital to shareholders. Like Sam said, if, if you need money, you can sell very liquid assets quite easily. Um, so I think dividends are quite silly, arguably, um, in, in kind of modern capital markets that are especially the liquid ones. Um, and I also think that you see corporate managers intentionally managing a dividend policy to placate or attract a certain shareholder base um, when that decision is not necessarily the right capital allocation decision in the business. Um, so there, this like simple psychology of the dividend, that word, the power of that word and that concept and that feeling, I think has had a dramatic impact on corporate culture and, and uh, capital allocation. And that it's also an opportunity to buy companies that don't think like that, that are much lumpier capital allocators, more opportunistic, less policy-based, um, which we found empirically is a great way to pick stocks. Uh, you know, very, very shareholder yield. Really, what we mean by that is super lumpy buybacks at cheap prices. Companies that do that tend to outperform uh, quite handily. Interesting. Um, Sam, would you say, I mean, given the demographics that we have around the world, I mean, you could say, you know, you're buying stock for the cash flows that it generates. And, you know, for investors, the cash flows are generally their dividends, buybacks. You got to eventually return cash shareholders in some form. And so certainly the buyback is one way you can do it. But demographically speaking, we're all getting, you know, the societies are getting older. They somewhat need income to replace their actual investing income. Now, they could always generate the income by selling the stocks and living out of capital. But there seems to be, again, this behavioral phenomena that they want, the, they like getting that dividend. Now, do you think the behavioral element of managing the cash flows is just better that way for people? Is that why they're doing it? Or is there another characteristic of a dividend-paying stock that tends to get lower volatility associated with it compared to some of the higher flyers where that, that creates even you know, worse behavior when you get the higher volatility in the non-dividend-paying stocks? Yeah. So I, I think you're touching on kind of two separate issues there. One is... Um, let, let's say, you know, one theory would be, say, dividends are a signal of safety, um, which is about a characteristic of a stock that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what type of investor uh, you are. But if you're viewing it in that way, I, I truthfully don't have much to say. Like, you know, we can debate whether it's a good signal or a bad signal, but that's a reason to invest in the stock in general. What my research is more about is kind of the the cash payout, wanting the cash, which I think is something that especially kind of um, anecdotally, at least aging um, populations really like dividend paying stocks uh, because of kind of this uh, perception of income. What I'd say my research suggests is that a good amount of this probably isn't say optimal because um, you know they've got really high transaction costs or um, really severe things going on or it's tax advantage, but it seems to be that they don't realize that the div like the the price level and the dividend are mechanically linked and, and so you kind of miss the fact that the the price drops by the amount of the dividend and so and prices are really volatile so like a dividend gets paid and the market can move around a lot that day and it's not like you'll see the price drop even though on average it does drop by almost the full amount of the dividend so i think it's a trade off that's obfuscated um, it's rarely displayed together so it, it's a hard thing to kind of get the feedback to realize uh, that you aren't doing quite the right thing. So I think that, that that's kind of behind the, the psychology of, of this demand for dividends. Sam, uh, question for you. I just actually just thought of this on the fly here, but you mentioned it's kind of a behavioral phenomenon, and you think in a world of fintech and you know betterment, wealth front, <clears throat> they should have an ability to almost create synthetic dividend where behind the scenes all the investor sees is cash in their account and it feels like a dividend. Do you think technology could solve this or not? So, uh, I mean, I, th I think that in the case of, say, demand for an aging population, this seems like a great way for technology to solve something. 
because, you know, depending on the investor, oftentimes dividends are, say, tax disadvantaged or involve some costs that would maybe be better avoided. And if your goal is to, say, have a set amount of income or something like that, this seems to be something much better served by, say, a product that pays out that at a given amount. Um, now, in general, financial products can do this, and it's called a return of capital, and no one does it because a return of capital doesn't sound good. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, with a little rebranding, all of a sudden it's not a return of capital. It's something about income from your investments, and I, I think that people could respond well to that. But some of it's just the the word. The what if you call it an appreciation dividend <laughs> as opposed to return of capital? There are some firms that call it Vanguard or, you know, dividend appreciation strategies, something like that. that the growth of dividend strategies are, are things people look at. Um, do you think, I know some of your commentary was on how people prefer dividends in different interest rate environments, and we're at historically low rate environment, although some of that's pressuring. And even in the last 12 months, you've seen a big rotation between interest rate sensitive sectors and not. You have a, do you follow valuations on these, these stocks? Do you think they're more expensive than normal today? So I, ha I have to admit that I don't know exactly at the moment, but I can tell you what our paper says. Um, which is more about historically what's happened on average, and I think is is pretty relevant for now. Which is that um, we've got a a paper of kind of demand for the ca or a measure of uh, the cash uh, the the demand for the cash payout, and we show that it correlates a lot with uh, the level of the interest rate. So when interest rates are low, lots of money flows towards dividend paying assets. And historically, if you look at those periods, the dividend-paying stocks do tend to outperform over the next month in times where you have these really extreme uh, demands. And I know, I think our paper ended in mid-2016. Um, our, our measure was as high as it's ever been historically. So that was the bottom of interest rates right before it yep. turned around, and that's right when the high-yielding sector started outperforming. I do think when you look at, say, the growth, or even just the dividend growth stocks versus dividend yield stocks, you do see in the U.S. It's the, I think it's actually different internationally. Say in the emerging markets, actually much different profile. But U.S. safe yield stocks are at P ratios similar as what I'd call quality growth stocks, which if you're earning much higher returns in capital, you'd expect to pay a premium, which you do in the emerging markets and international. But U.S. not necessarily so. You see something similar, Patrick, or any other? Uh, we, we did a bunch of research. It's a couple of years stale on on yield, dividend yield versus growth, quality factors, how they interplay in all this, and. As is often the case in, in public market quant research, you get counterintuitive results. So like in the U.S. specifically, it is different internationally. Dividend growth as a factor is actually a negative predictor of return. So the highest dividend growth stocks in percentage terms go on to underperform. On average, it's not a very strong signal. It's not like valuation or momentum as an example. Um, but all things equal, you would rather own stocks because of their raw yield versus their dividend growth rates. Um, but I don't think that sounds nearly as good. So when, when you go and pursue like product lineups, you know, the, the dividend aristocrats or firms that have been growing their dividends for 30 years or, you know, there's all sorts of different strategies that I don't think are really empirically sound, but they, they sound good. Uh, just a quick follow-up on that, uh, Patrick. I, and I don't know if this is what explains your situation, but you know, we Jack and I wrote a paper where we, we look at these high-yield strategies, and they work because they're, in general, kind of a noisy proxy for cheapness. Yep. Is, is that why internationally they don't work? Because it's not really cheap stocks you're buying? When I said internationally, it's different. The dividend growth factor um, doesn't seem to predict negative future returns internationally. And, and dividends, there's just a stronger preference for paying dividends and owning dividend-paying stocks internationally. So it's kind of a different like corporate culture, especially in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but but you're right. We, we wrote a paper about dividend yield. And I think the reason it worked was that it was just a correlative low PE stocks. Um, and that changed really kind of post-global financial crisis with low interest rates. The correlation between, if you just did like a rank correlation between the highest dividend paying yielding stocks and other value measures basically went to zero. So for most of history, if you bought a basket of high dividend yield stocks, you had a value portfolio. That's really not the case anymore. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to be mindful of if you're a dividend investor. That is when Siegel got really interested in dividend as a factor in the writing of Future for Investors. It was all about how do you protect from bubbles. And you know, that last chapter of the book was DIV directives, and D stood for high dividend strategies, V stood for value low PE strategies. And it was a lot of sorting on value metrics. And he looked at dividends as a value metric. And I, I would agree that these factors can come more expensive and less expensive. I think the low rate environment did put just a real preference for yield in the U.S. And, and that's certainly one of the reasons I started focusing on the quality growth segment five or six years ago. I said, you know, these high dividend stocks don't have the same valuation discounts as they did 
historically now in the emerging markets, the cheapest basket of stocks I look at today has a below 10 PE. It's the emerging markets high dividend stock, which is basically as value-centric emerging market portfolios you get today. Yep. Yeah, we see the same thing. So, Sam, this is probably my favorite paper you've written, the juicing paper. <laughs> Can you please explain to the audience what juicing the dividend is and why they should be cognizant of this effect? Totally. So we, we wrote this paper in part because uh, we wanted to show that there was this behavioral demand for a cash payout. And so what we did is we were looking for mutual funds, who which are pass-through vehicles. So in order for a mutual fund to give you a dividend, it has to receive the dividend in terms of the cash payout being called a dividend. Um, and so what we were doing is we can look at fund holdings, and so we can guess kind of how much they should be paying out in dividends in general, and then we can see what they actually paid out. And so what we found is there was a subset of funds that were consistently paying out much higher dividend yields than their holdings uh, suggested that they they kind of should be. And so we call that dividend juicing, that it's indicative that they're actively trading in some way to receive more dividends. Um, in doing so, they send more money to the investors in terms of dividends, but the investor actually gets made worse off because there's trading costs in general. This is kind of tax disadvantaged. If they aren't holding them long enough, then they're um, not qualified dividends and they're taxed at a higher rate. So this is something that is also strictly dominated because if you're in the world of, say, investors who want income, as we talked about before, well, you could always just send them a cat, a check of their own money back. It's called a return of capital. It's not taxed for anything. So there's no reason that they couldn't just have done this. Um, but it seems like people wanted to receive this dividend. So we find that the funds that did this actually received higher flows after they did so. So, so it's almost a predatory behavior on behalf of fund managers to and take I've, advantage I've of I've seen behavior. the marketing pitches on some of these given in the dividend space, and it's like called dividend capture strategies, where they, they will absolutely market that. They, they're not even hiding it. They're saying, we have a dynamic dividend rotation where we're trying to rotate and capture this quote-unquote dividend premium. Yeah, so there, there's a subset of funds. We kind of split the world into what we call the the kind of the explicit juicers who are doing this dividend capture. And then we uh, have a subset we call closet juicers that are, aren't necessarily... Uh, closet trackers, closet juicers. Exactly. So they, they aren't explicitly saying that they're doing it. But so even if, you know, if you're the dividend capture guy, if that's what your prospectus says, it, it's catering to a strange preference. Um, but at least the investors are aware of it and they're they're buying it for that reason. Um, the guys who are doing this and it's not as easy to see, that I, I guess would be more in the, the predatory camp of, you know, kind of uh, catering to this preference. And most likely the investors are seeing this dividend yield and liking it, but aren't really realizing on the back end that they're losing in fees and losing in taxes and things like that. Sam, now... This is Super Bowl week, and I know you've done some writing. You've got a paper on the NFL and, and the disposition effect tied to the NFL. Can we talk about that research? Absolutely. So uh, this is a paper that was looking at uh, gambling in what's called a prediction market. So uh, you see these in the presidential elections. You see these in, in sporting events where it's basically a market set up like a stock market. Securities are traded. And the, the securities would be something like Eagles win, you pay out $10. Patriots win, you pay out $0. It gets, you know, traded in classic limit order market. And so if the price is, say, $6 on that contract, it means the market says there's a 60% chance that the Eagles would win the game. Um, and so this is kind of a cool place to look at behavioral biases because um, we were looking at in-game trading. And so about half of the volume in this market happened in the game, but a large chunk happened before the game where prices are pretty much uh, flat. So you have a huge chunk of this market that bought in at the same price. And so what that means, if the price goes down, or, you know, half, uh, half the market is better off, half is worse off, goes up the same thing. And so the disposition effect is your, uh, you don't like selling positions at a loss, you like closing out the position at a gain. And so if it kicks off at say $6, and then let's say the Eagles score a touchdown and it goes to $8, a lot of people want to, you know, get this $2, close out their position, and all the people at $2 losses don't want to do so. So we actually found that this led to systematic biases around these events where there was kind of systematic buying or selling pressure depending on which way uh, the game was going relative to this level that um, 
people uh, bought in at, and this led to just systematically biased prices in the markets uh, in predictable ways. Get evenitis works everywhere. We're going to have to take a short break, um, but we're going to continue our discussion with Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architects, Sam Hartsmark of the University of Chicago, Patrick O'Shaughnessy of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Orange School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host sitting in the studio, Wes Gray of Alpha Architects. We've got two great guests in the studio, Sam Hartsmark, who's the Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Blue School of Business, and Patrick O'Shaughnessy, the new CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Really a, a pleasure to have you both in the studio. Patrick, congratulations on being the newly appointed CEO Thank of O'Shaughnessy you, Asset Management. What's it like um, to become the CEO of a, an asset management business? Well, I, I've thought a lot about the the business behind asset management strategies over the last couple of years. So it, it's been really fun, honestly, um, trying to understand the business from every different angle. It's a lot of moving parts. Uh, I think it's always good to have a fresh set of eyes on things, and and so that's been really fun. Um, but but it's one of our core tenets too is this idea that if you can have the best investing strategy in the world, if you don't have a firm that's structured to survive the ups and downs of any good investment strategy, um, it's no good at all. Uh, and if you don't have the right investors, it's no good at all. So I think a lot about those things, not just the strategy itself, but but the business and the relationship with investors. And I think that's the way to, uh, in, a, in the world of Vanguard, uh, build, build a good asset management shop. So Patrick, one of probably my favorite reads of all time, if everyone Googles it, it's called Assets Versus Alpha. Can you just explain that piece and kind of what the the main point is? Sure, it actually ties into the first point about you know how to build an asset management business. So um, assets and alpha, I think, are just are just opposed, right? In, in 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 theory, but also in practice. When you try to raise assets, the more money you raise, the less flexibility you have on the strategy side. Um, not just in terms of liquidity. So that's the obvious one. Is you know if you get a hundred billion dollars or two hundred billion dollars, there's just fewer stocks that you can really trade uh, and traffic in. Otherwise, you'll destroy all your alpha through frictional you know impact costs. Um, but the other thing also is that once you get a firm that big, uh, career risk tends to start to rear, rear its ugly head. Uh, it's much easier to be a closet index type strategy um, and, and really hug a benchmark so you don't get fired. Um, so, so there's this kind of tension between assets and alpha. Uh, and the more assets you gather, the harder it is to earn, I think, real legit alpha through time. Um, so I think we like to think of it as an alpha first strategy that we would be willing to sacrifice you know scale and size to make sure that there's integrity around like when we close a strategy or how we do our research what we're targeting how we educate uh, and communicate with our investors um, it's it's a high bar but i think people have to always ask them ask themselves that question when they see an investment strategy is who designed this what were their motivations and where on this spectrum do they fall i'm not i'm not saying that some strategies that can have hundreds of billions of them are bad strategies. We know there are good ones, uh, but it's a spectrum and you just need to be mindful of it. Yeah, Wes, I think both of you have taken the very active approach. I mean, when I thought about starting, you had to go deep capacity. But think, Patrick, when you think about O'Shaughnessy today, you guys have about $7 billion in assets. Yep. How would you say the capacity, like how would you think about the capacity levels for some of your specific popular strategy? Or how do you model it if you're thinking about a new strategy? What's the capacity you're looking to target? So uh, like all things, we just go to the data and we've got historical kind of cost curve data that we can estimate how much impact cost to expect. We would expect to beat those 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 uh, estimates pretty handily with good trading, but uh, it's a good litmus test. So you say, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice X percentage of my expected alpha in costs, and that's a pretty low percentage. Um, so w w at that stage, when would I expect to close it? And I'll just give you an example. I mean, these are relative, these are still huge numbers, right? But um, I think a lot of, say, U.S. large cap strategies, a value strategy with lower turnover, might be able to accommodate $100 billion. Mm -hmm. and, and we would be able to accommodate it, you know, a small fraction of that, maybe 20 or 25, something like that. Um, so it is all relative. That's a, that would be a good problem to have, I suppose, um, a, as a business. But but it definitely tends to be a, a you know a quarter or a fifth of of more traditional strategies. So when when you look out to the different strategies that one can deploy, are there certain factors or certain characteristics that are more susceptible to this than others? Um, I, you know, I honestly don't know. I think with certain individual factors, we'll take price to book as like the canonical value factor. Uh, there's no doubt that there is heavy concentration of return spread or alpha in very small stocks with the price to book factor. So um, if you were a $100,000 investor, uh, you could traffic in low price to book micro caps and probably expect to do really well. 
once you get up into mega caps, price to book really doesn't look all that interesting or compelling. Um, so yeah, there does seem to be some factors that erode more as you go up the cap spectrum. Um, but then there are others that don't, like other, fa- other value factors like flow-based um, versus stock-based measures of value tend to do pretty well in large cap. Momentum work- works very well in large cap. This idea of shareholder yield has held up remarkably well you know, post-publication 20, 30 years ago in large cap. Um, so some seem to survive it, but you then you need to you need to have your neck out there. You need to have higher tracking area. You need to be willing to accommodate higher active share, things like this, lower overlap with the benchmark. So in the first segment, we, we picked on dividends as a factor. Yeah. Why don't we pick on one that's an easy target for all three of us here? Price to book, which is our famous uh, Chicago friend over there. Chicago <laughs> likes price to book as a factor. Um, <laughs> What what if I look at price to book as a factor today? You're basically just buying financials. You sort by price to book. You're just buying financials as a factor. What do we think about price to book? Has it just changed meaning since they published the research 20 years ago? Is there a use case beyond just buying financials? Well, I think the uh, there's a lot of ways you can slice and dice this, and and a lot of these things will hold up even if you neutralize for sector. So yeah, it's a heavy financial bet today, but all of the same I think demerits for price to book happen if you go sector neutral as well. So it's not just financials. I think there's, you know, there's the obvious thing like the rise of intangible assets, right? That's maybe I don't know what it is today. Maybe it's a third of the S and P 500's book value is intangibles. Like, how do you deal with that? Um, there's the problem of things like buybacks and how they affect common equity. Um, you know, how do you properly adjust for that, or do, should you properly adjust for that? Um, I, I mentioned that like idea of stock versus flow. Like, I just think it's it's much less reactive. Um, at extremely low price to books, it can be a it can be a proxy for bankruptcy risk. So oftentimes you'll see like really low price to book stocks that are hemorrhaging cash. You know, negative earnings, negative cash flows, which obviously that wouldn't be the case in, say, a low price to cash flow strategy. So I think there's a lot of things we could talk about, but that's just a small list. Yeah, one point, uh, I think Chris Meredith wrote a piece about how buybacks affect book to market. Uh, do you remember what that's called? Just so people can Google that. And um, I, you know, I don't remember the name of it, but if you Google, you know, OSAM price to book, it'll it'll probably be the first the yeah, first thing that pops I thought up. It was great piece. So Sam, we kind of. Uh, you know, threw you on their bus a little bit under the assumption that you're from Chicago, you probably like price to book. But it, one, is that a true statement? And if not, what's your preference for the value measure? I, I, I have to admit that I don't have a strong uh, strong preference on value <laughs> measure. Um, yeah, I, I trust you guys more for having looked into that. I've never written written on it or don't know too much about it. To be fair, I would still, you know, if given the option, okay, I can buy the S&P 500 or I can buy like the 100 cheapest price to book stocks and the S&P 500 rebalanced on some frequency, I would still do that. Um, so I don't think it's a broken fact, purely broken. I just think there are better alternatives. Yeah, agree with that. Sector neutral or the 100 cheapest stocks? Well, usually if, if you allow uh, uh, sensibly the ability to allocate to different industries and sectors, it's a risk that you're compensated for. So that's always our question. Like our, our DNA is we want high octane factor exposures. We think that's what drives excess return. What are the question then is what are the drag along risks associated with those exposures? It's sector, region, country, currency, all this, all the classic risk groups. And then you just model and say, well, am I being compensated for this risk? And the answer, I think, is to a point, yes, you are. Um, you should have sensible limits. Like you should, you shouldn't be able to go seventy percent financials. That doesn't make any sense, and you're not, you, you know, you don't earn that extra return for it. But I think you do need to have some flexibility to move around, mm-hmm. so not purely sector neutral. So, Patrick, one of the things you mentioned at the top was the word dividends. Just it, it triggers emotional things. I think the word alpha is nowadays also triggers emotional reactions. Well, how do you think about alpha? What is it? What does it mean to you? Yeah, the, we we run into this a lot. Where you know, should we call it alpha or excess return or risk premium? Like, there's 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 a big semantic argument because factor investing has become so popular. Um, I think about it in very simple terms. Can you outperform the market with a, a high degree of consistency in using these signals and, and do they degrade? So uh, we were talking earlier this morning when we were all together about uh, anomalies where there's sort of academic work being done uh, on the anomaly. There's a working paper and then it's published and then after it's published, it's gone, right? It gets arbitraged away by all the, all the geniuses all over Wall Street. So what interests us is stuff that doesn't get arbed away. Um, the reasons for that are myriad. We don't, we don't, we, we can't say with confidence exactly why they don't, but we just know that kind of a very small handful of things don't get arbed away, and that's where we want to position our portfolios. and And we think that there is real alpha there. Now, is that for? Is it a risk we're being compensated for? Is it is it market behavior that they just make the same stupid behavioral mistakes? I'm more in the behavioral camp, but I don't know. I, I I'm not. I, I'm not arrogant enough to know, um, but we just know it's it survived, and I think that's alpha. Yeah, Sam, just 
you know, obviously come from Chicago. I'm curious, has there been any evolution in thinking of alpha in academics these days? Uh, I mean, I think that there's definitely uh, a consensus that you can find in sample alphas. Um, and I'd say that, uh, in, in my opinion, there's some, some good evidence consistent with some of that having out-of-sample predictability. Um, so the, the paper we were talking about, about kind of alpha decay, seemed quite consistent with, you know, folks finding things that absolutely worked, people trading on them, uh, and the thing being corrected. Um, there are also, I'd say, a number of things that seem to either be uh, statistically quite strong, you know, something like momentum that, that has been, you know, present in a whole bunch of different samples, time periods, markets um, that, you know, again, do you want to call it like a beta, you know, on, on a risk factor? Do you want to call that alpha? I think that's semantic. Do you want to say that it uh, has historically performed, outperformed the market? Um, it, it seems to have done that on, you know, a, a number of different metrics. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We have Patrick O'Shaughnessy, CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, Sam Hartsmark, a assistant professor at Chicago's University Booth School of Business, Wesley Gray of Alpha Architect. Patrick, as, as CEO, wearing the CEO hat, let's talk a little bit beyond just the strategies. How, let's talk about what you think about asset management generally um, at $7 billion. What are your aspirations? Where do you want to go? Um, what are the initiatives you want to take, OSAM, in the future? Up and to the right, Jeremy. Up and to the right. <laughs> Growth. So, so we think a lot about um, uh, the two other stacks in our business. So obviously, like performance and the product and the research, you know, if that's doing well, you're going to have a good asset management business for the most part. Uh, assets tend to follow consistent performance over time. But then there's two other kind of verticals that I think about. Um, the first is just relationships, like, like almost any business. Um, the depth and quality of your relationships can, can have a meaningful impact on, on the quality of the business. So we think about that a lot. And the last one, which I think is the most interesting that, you know, Wes, I really admire how Wes and his firm have, have done this in particular, we call, I think about it, I call it the stack investor education. So one of the problems with asset management, even the best strategy is going to have a three-year, a five-year, maybe even a 10-year period when it loses to its reference benchmark. So it's a very, you could have the highest quality research and work going into an investment process, and it could still stink for a long period of time. And you kind of have to accept that as a quant. So what I think about is, well, what else can we put out there that is far more consistent in quality? And I think that's education. So that's white papers, it's podcasts. It's events. It's time spent with clients. It's being very open to exploring things outside of just pure, you know, value and momentum. Whether that's cryptocurrencies or venture capital or private equity, just understanding capital markets and sharing that knowledge, kind of learning alongside the audience, because we feel we can do that. Uh, I know Wes has done it. I've kind of modeled myself after him. If you can do that extremely consistently uh, and, and of a very high quality, I think that's a great way to affect an active management business, uh, because there's the elephant, you know, pretty close by in Vanguard and some other, some of these other massive institutions that have scale economies that are very difficult to fight against. So you need to find a niche, you need to stick to your knitting, uh, and I think you need to focus on like transparency and education and being very open with your prospects and your clients. Uh, so Patrick, one thing we uh, talked about earlier I thought was pretty fascinating is that it sounds like you guys might be moving more towards international emerging where your research and, and data processing is you feel like you have an edge. You mind explaining about that? Yeah. So I think uh, the thing we really pride ourselves on is is our research platform. You know, we like that we've got we've generated some really good track records. But more than anything, we we have spent an incredible amount of time. You mentioned Chris Meredith, who's really I would call the architect of this platform, um, building a world class uh, data source and set of programming tools. Um, so we can kind of slice and dice the equity universe and the history of equity trading and stock markets with incredible precision and care. And the question is, how can we use that, deploy that platform on behalf of investors in ways that solve their problems, right? So like anyone, we can't design the perfect thing ahead of time. Oftentimes it's people coming to us and saying, hey, can you use your engine and your sort of investment philosophy and DNA to solve this specific problem? And, and more recently, I think that started to be in quirky places like you know international small cap value, uh, emerging markets, uh, places that are a little bit harder to reach where there's less product saturation, et cetera. And of course, from a business standpoint, it's very diversifying as well. Uh, and the markets are a lot cheaper. So we're all value guys for the most part. Um, the, the multiples that you have to pay, the, the, the yields you can earn are, are much higher. So that's, that's super intriguing to us as well. So if you talked a little bit about value momentum. I mean, as you think about the new research agenda, where do you think the research agenda takes you? You're trying to do content. You're trying to do other things of investor education. 
Um, any other strategies that you're looking to, to place out their flags? Well, they work together, right? So content is just a residual of the research process. So first and foremost, we're just trying to figure things out. And ask any good quant, they'll tell you like 95 out of 100 things they look at just don't go anywhere. Uh, maybe the number's higher than that, actually. I think there really are kind of a kernel couple things that, that seem to work. We've talked a lot about them today. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop yep. looking. Um, and, there, you know, look, there's new data sources. There's new ways of thinking about um, quality is something we think a lot about as a negative screen. Mm. So, yeah, value, momentum, and yield are great. Um, but if you can thoughtfully eliminate just disastrous businesses from that sample, maybe that can add value um, or, or, or improve things like downside capture or Sortino ratios, things of that nature. Um, so I see, you know, it's a lot of nuanced um, uh, new data sets, uh, new tools. You know, we're, we're fascinated by, although skeptical of things like machine learning and, and uh, deep learning algorithms. Um, we haven't really had any success with those, honestly, um, but but we love having those in our toolkit. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of exploration of the core concept to, to keep staying at the edge of it. So I think everybody who follows your podcast, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners here do, you talked about, you had the hash power one, we'd start off with that show. Anything that you think that you should be, you're gonna think about doing around there? Should you, should Osam O'Shaughnessy do a crypto fund? Is that something you're thinking about? I thought about it. it. It's certainly in the wheelhouse, right? It's it's a it's a new asset class. It's data intensive. Um, it's, it's very interesting. You know, I, I'm not sold completely on the beta aspect of it, whereas I very clearly am in the equity markets. Like, I'm a long-term equity investor. I am not a long-term crypto value, investor. What's the value of crypto? How do you sort by value? I mean, who who, the, who knows? We're, I, we're, we're, I think Cliff would say the last five-year returns or something like so, that. So, so there's some interest. There's a guy named uh, Balaji Srinivasan who's done this work on quantifying decentralization. So if you buy that the, the value prop of things like Monero or Zcash or Bitcoin or whatever is that it's censorship and judgment resistant, it's sort of this, <laughs> this new world financial order, then decentralization is like a quality metric, right? Like you don't want you don't want there to be just a few nodes in the network. You want a, you want a computer in every legal jurisdiction in the, around the globe, and you can quantify this stuff. Um, so there are emerging ways of, of looking at this. You know, we've looked a little bit. I wouldn't expect anything uh, imminently, uh, but that's the we want to have that open posture and mindset because if if this goes the way of tokenized securities, where this is a new way we're talking about ways to get income, like if you could tokenize a specific cash flow stream within a business or something and have it be a legal security, right, so regulated, but to deliver something super specific, that's a really compelling, interesting idea. We want to be early in having looked looked at the data and thought about it and be prepared for it. And know how to raise capital in, in some ways. I mean, exactly. That, that is an interesting use case I have to think about. Uh, one of our uh, advisors, actually, we might get him on this podcast here, Dave Bablack, he has a great uh, comment where he says, you know, business has got to create value but they also got to capture value. So, yep. and I'm wondering in this whole blockchain tech thing, clearly this is very valuable, but I'm curious, how how will the businesses capture the value? So it's, it's it's right, like there's not, we were talking earlier, there's nothing really new under the sun, right? Every, everything kind of always returns to the same thing. Incentives are incentives. And so the people that are designing these decentralized protocols, they're not, you know, C, Delaware C-Corps or LLCs, they're, you know, foundations that are based in, in Switzerland. Um, but the developers, the equivalent of, let's say, a startup founder, are, you know, uh, surprise, surprise, holding back some percentage of the float of the tokens for themselves. Um, so they're creating incentives for themselves. That's the way they capture value. And then they need the network that they're building to somehow be like a little mini economy for file storage or compute power or whatever, um, something that can be digitally transferred. And if, if they do a good job, then they own 10 or 20 percent. It's like carried interest. Like it's it's always the same. Right. So they'll people will figure out ways to incentivize themselves to do a good job. Will they will it disrupt the asset management business. Will is there a use case to replace whether it's ETF, separate accounts, funds? Is there any use case there? I mean, I would take the short side of that bet. What I mean is like I think that the probability that the market is putting on that happening is high is is, is mispriced. I, I, there are some interesting firms like a company called Numeri, um, but the jury is really still out. It's really early days. You know, asset management is adaptive. It will it will find its its own way to use the new tech. It's a technology, right? That's yep. what this is. So it'll find a way to use this new technology in, in kind of the same old models would be my prediction. So Patrick, you look out, you're now CEO of a seven billion dollar asset manager. Ten years from now, where where are you guys at? What are you all about? What what's OSAM ten years from now? I mean, we, well, like you guys, we, we are we are process over outcome people. Um, so we are just going to try to keep working that ex same exact process. Be really ambitious and high velocity on the research side. Uh, make sure that we're at the we're at the edge of research, not not playing catch up. Um, being really committed to doing that exploration in public to the extent we can. We're not going to give up you know secret sauce or proprietary edge that that 
belongs to our clients, frankly. Um, but we're, we're going to use our research as a chance to share that knowledge with people and double down on that stuff. You know, the podcast um, that I host was was totally an experiment and an accident, and it just happened to hit 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 a demand, right? And and that's grown a lot. And so my philosophy is always going to be when you find a, a fit with the market like that, it probably means you should push a lot harder on that thing and not try to diversify in some other way. Um, so that's that will be our ethos is like cutting edge research, the best new research we can conduct on behalf of our clients and a commitment to sharing that through education. Yeah, one of your one of your personal brand things that you you know I found fascinating from you is your book list and your reading list. How have you changed your learning process over the years between the podcast and the book? Maybe what what's your personal thoughts and all that? Well, people ask me, you know, what I do, and I just I'm, I'm just a researcher. Like I just like to research things. I like to learn. Um, I'm a big believer in reading or talking around your field rather than in it. Um, I think if I, all I did was read, you know, quant research, I would get biases. I would I would I would be anchored to certain ideas. I find it more interesting to read like goofy history books or biographies or science books or you know things around the field that often inspire different angles of research or inquiry. Um, so, so that's the idea. It's just, just, just kind of learn in all directions. And um, what you find is that it's, it's, frankly, everything's kind of about the same thing. Um, everything is kind of connected. Once you get past like a hundred books, you start to realize that it's kind of all one major thread uh, in the nonfiction world, even in the fiction world. Um, so, yeah, just, just a, just a, a philosophy of uh, broad reading, broad conversations. I would say I read less now um, with the podcast. Frankly, I can, I can get a book's worth of information from a, uh, a new friend, you know, over a conversation. That's sometimes more enjoyable than, than grinding through a book. But still, probably read, you know, fifty books a year or something like that. Well, and- if, correct me if I'm wrong. But you have two kids, right? Yep. Four and two. Yep. How do you go about reading fifty books a year exactly? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I everyone asks this question, and it just happens. I don't know. I I, I, I feel a lot of downtime reading. You know, I'm, we're in Philly. I'm going to go back towards New York later today. I'll read. I'll, I can read decent. I'm not a fast reader, but I can definitely get through probably a book. Uh, you know, on a two-hour train ride, something like that. Um, so I just feel. I don't know. I feel fill the blank spaces. Uh, try to be efficient about time. 2x the 2x uh, from the podcast listening helps me a lot. I started listening to a lot more to try to keep up with you. Yep, yeah, it works. It works really well. So yeah, just fill the time and be curious. I guess well, one thing I just follow up on that. Actually, throw this to you, Sam. Um, you know, there is like this this philosophy out there. You can either be around the topic to get inspired by new ideas, or you can be ten miles deep and then you know centimeter wide. You know, Sam, you're a professional researcher at arguably the top finance program in the world. What's your approach on this? So I think my personal approach is probably closer to Patrick. So, I mean, and there, there are many people who are successful at multiple ways, but a lot of my papers are bringing something from outside of the academic world, whether it's psychology or something, you know, you read in a book or the Wall Street Journal or something like that that kind of you know, gets you thinking about something and then you see the what the academic world is doing and you kind of see a tension between the two and it makes you want to kind of dig as to why there's that tension, you know, what what seems to be underlying it. And, and I think a lot of the motivation for me to find those tensions is uh, precisely reading, you know, random fiction or psychology or or things that are outside the field. And I think that, that bringing that lens into kind of the, the small world of academic finance, uh, I, I think, really uh, helps you look at it with a, a bit of a different view than other people. Plus, it's just more fun. Yes, absolutely more fun. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that I, I think our audience will appreciate, just because i kind of been in both worlds here, is like, you know, Patrick's dad had wrote this great book called What Works on Wall Street. And everyone who's ever done anything in a practical sense is like, well, yeah, I've got 10 copies of this on my shelf. But then you go to academics, like we asked Sam, he's like, I don't even know who that is. Like, <laughs> so it's very interesting. Even, even yeah. within finance research, the Ivy Tower version and the practitioners. I, I got own. lucky with Professor Siegel because that was the first book he had me read for the Future for Investors research was What Works in Wall Street. I remember that. I have it still on my shelf. And he suggested not to go into my PhD because he said you're too practical. So I got, <laughs> I got lucky with my mentor. Um, Sam Hartsmark, thanks for coming to Studio Patrick. It's been a pleasure to have you down here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, our producer, Patty Hall. Have a great week, everybody. 
Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. We'll be right back.